Welcome to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy you could join us today, and we are happy to welcome back to the show Miranda Spint. She is a policy associate at a Wisconsin-based think tank, a contributor for Young Voices. And uh, you probably wear a few other hats, too, don't you, Miranda? Yes, yes. Tell us just a little bit about yourself, at least for, for the sake of people meeting you for the first time. Sure. So, yep, I, so I live in Wisconsin. I work at a, a policy think tank here and a litigation firm here in Milwaukee. Um, I'm also going to school. I'm getting my master's degree in public administration um, and do some some community work here with um, Latino groups and stuff like that out here in Wisconsin. So, yeah, thank you for having me on. Well, it seems like Wisconsin has uh, played a larger and larger role um, lately, especially in presidential elections. It seems like it's become one of those critical states, you know, where, uh, you know, people are keeping an eye to see which way the vote goes. I'm looking at your article from the Daily Caller. This heartland state, and I assume you're talking about Wisconsin, is slipping away yes. from the GOP. Talk to me about uh, about the dynamic that's happening there. Sure. So we just recently had a Supreme Court election here where we lost by 10 points to the liberal candidate, Janet Protasiewicz. And no one was expecting um, the conservative candidate to win. I don't think there might have been a chance, but that was an expected outcome. However, um, a lot of people are attributing this loss to um, the uh, abortion ruling in Roe v. Wade, that that was a very motivating um, issue for voters to come out. Um, and also some people are calling it the Trump effect, saying that um, because Dan Kelly, um, who was a conservative candidate, that he has um, some like associations, you know, supported Donald Trump or Donald Trump supports him, that that hurt him also. And those are certainly um, plausible explanations. But what I try to say in the article is that we don't want to rely on those because there has been a pattern of the GOP um, losing their stronghold areas in the state um, since the Walker administration. So it's important for the GOP to pay attention to that and not be um, complacent in their strategy when they're um, in, in elections. So. Miranda, talk to me about d- demographics. I, I'm seeing more and more that, well, look, you know, Generation Z is coming up as voters. And in fact, in the next couple of elections, they're going to be the critical mass of voters. Is, is, uh, is it the younger voters that, that are skewing these results? Or uh, is there really a, you know, is there a big shift taking place in the older, more established voters? Mm-hmm. The shift seems to be more um, geographic rather than um age, at least as far as what it seems. So what we're seeing is a huge shift in suburban areas towards the Democratic Party and then a large shift in rural areas towards the Republican Party. And the shift that we're seeing in rural areas just is not keeping up with the shift in suburban areas. So, for example, um, I forget the exact numbers, but there are 21 um, of the municipalities in Waukesha County, which is a really important county in Wisconsin because they tend to cancel out the votes from Dane County, which is where our capital is. So another very blue area. Um, They have been shifting by almost 20 points or more in the last 10 years towards the Democratic Party, um, which obviously is making um, our our ability to win the GOP um, in the state much more difficult. Wow. Now, I assume that trend is happening elsewhere as well. Um, it, it, just, it just seems that uh, across the country, the big um, metropolitan, highly populated areas uh, tend to go more blue, and, and the rural areas, the flyover country, uh, tends to be more red. 
but uh, I don't know. There's been some pretty big shift. What what would it take for the GOP to uh, to establish a stronger presence or to, to have a better showing in those very populated areas? Mm-hmm. Well, they at least in the, in the case of a lot of these surrounding areas of Milwaukee, they used to be very strong Republican areas. You know, winning by almost fifty points in a lot in most of our elections. And I think what's happening is that that large margin of success in those areas made them lazy, is my guess. So what we saw in this recent Supreme Court election is that Janet Protasiewicz, before she even won the primary, she was saturating the airways with advertisements, made the whole debate about abortion. That was this was that's what this election became was the abortion issue because of how adamant she was in her advertising on TV and with voter contact. But we weren't seeing any of that from the Republican Party or from the um, the campaign itself for the conservative candidate. And they didn't even start putting out advertisements or doing voter contact till two weeks before the actual election day. So it just seems like maybe they were ex- relying on a few other things. You know, in spring elections, they tend to have higher turnout for conservatives in general, um, things like that. And then, of course, their general reliance on these more Republican areas makes me think that they were hopefully they were hoping for a better outcome with the least amount of effort possible. <laughs> and that's obviously not going to work. We have an increasingly motivated Democratic Party and they're seeing the gains that they're making in, in super important states like Wisconsin. And I think the GOP is um, this is a wake up call for them. They can't let it slide anymore. OK, so correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to misstate what you're saying. But what, what I'm hearing, it sounds like uh, it's not so much a case of the GOP isn't reading the room as much as they they may have been coasting, felt like they had momentum that they maybe really didn't have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is that's my two cents um, from what I was seeing. I mean, waiting two weeks before an election to put out an advertisement just seems, especially in a race that was as contentious as this, this race beat records for fundraising for statewide campaigns. And this was this was a very big deal. So for them to, it seems like they weren't doing enough. And yeah, it seems like they're trying to coast through. Okay, so I have to ask you this because I, I hear this from all over the place. Um, some people who feel disaffected with the GOP are not so much disaffected because, well, they've taken a strong stance on abortion or, um, you know, they've taken a strong stance on the Second Amendment. It's rather they feel like they haven't taken a strong enough stance. And and uh, I, it seems like there's there's a, a schism within the GOP of people saying, look, we got to leave these cultural issues behind for the most part and, and focus on, you know, trying to woo people from the center versus uh, there are those saying you need to take a harder stand because it feels like the left is, is really pushing the boundaries on, on some of those cultural issues. Mm-hmm. I I agree with that. And I don't know what the right answer is. Um, I mean, the, the left is definitely really focusing on these cultural issues, and it does seem to be harming the GOP to try to, at least for the, those of, the, of those for those in the party who are on the side of we need to take a step back from that. I think that that maybe is causing some harm. But, you know, I guess we'll just have to see. What, I don't know what other state parties do, see what works and what doesn't. I honestly, I really wish that uh, that sometimes the fervor would just come down a couple of notches because it, it seems more and more, and this is, I think, this is true on both sides, that uh, they're, they're each uh, getting more and more intense um, and desperate 
uh, might even be the word, you know, to, to either hang on to power or to, to grab that power back. Um, the, the pendulum swings. I get that. But it feels like mm-hmm. it, it's swinging especially hard. Do you do you have a perception of is, is it uh, is it swinging faster? Or is it just my imagination? It definitely seems to be swinging much faster and much, much harder. You know, we win one election and then you have four years to talk about all the horrible things that, that party did. And then it swings all the way back. It's definitely a bit of whiplash these past few elections, it does seem like, for sure. And, and Wisconsin being as uh, competitive and contentious as it is, it certainly feels that way here. Okay. And I, look, one of the things I love about your article, I love it in the title where you talk about this is the heartland. Um, this is mm-hmm. this is not one of the cosmopolitan, you know, coastal cities where, you know, everything's already, you know, very, very trendy and, and out there cutting edge, you know, where, where change is kind of expected. But, uh, it, you know, you would think that things would be more stable when you get to the heartland. And yet it, it sounds like uh, politics is, is as intense in Wisconsin as it is pretty much anywhere else. Exactly. And I think that's an important point that you bring up just to say that, you know, I think maybe that's another part of this coasting attitude of the GOP is to say that, you know, we, we're the party of the working person, the everyday person. They want to go to work and pay their bills and spend time with their family. And those are the people who are shifting towards the Democratic Party. Those are the people in Waukesha County where I live, you know, people like myself or my parents. And, you know, that there's a and I've seen the shift. So it's um, yeah, it's. It's uh, it's hard out there for sure for the okay. GOP and Miranda. You know, they I, I, I want to get your your opinion. We've got about a minute left here, but okay. Um, in, in addition to, to getting off their laurels, you know, and actually putting in the, the work that's required yeah. to get the message out, what do you feel are the most important messages that the GOP should be, you know, centering their their efforts on? I think that they have the right messaging with the economy. Um, with crime. Um, I think what they should be focusing on maybe more so is just trying to really rally their base around those issues. I mean, like crime is a very big deal for a lot of people, but unless you live in in the city of Milwaukee, that might not be as motivating of an issue as it is for somebody out in Waukesha. So I think it's maybe not so much the issues they should focus on, but just trying to really reiterate why these issues are important and to get people um, motivated to vote for them. All right. We are talking with Miranda Spint. She is a policy associate at a Wisconsin-based think tank, as well as a Young Voices uh, contributor. Where can we find you and follow you on social media, Miranda? Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Miranda underscore Spint. All right. Thank you so much for your time. I hope we talk again soon. Yeah. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Sophia Warringer back to the program. Uh, she joins us uh, from the UK, from uh, Great Britain. And uh, Sophia, I, I have to say, I, I feel, uh, I feel uh, kind of a connection with uh, with with your nation after watching the, the coronation of what, who was Prince Charles, but now is King Charles. Um, I didn't intend to watch, but I kind of got caught up in it and suddenly found out this is this is way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. But uh, um, I assume that was probably an even bigger deal for, for folks right there at home with you. 
Yeah, I think it was. And thank you so much for having me um, back on the show. I um, think the coronation was one of those things where the country was not necessarily really uh, looking forward to it. There was some celebration, but there was something that we weren't quite sure what the response would be. And yet on the day, despite the fact that it poured with rain all day, the crowds turned out, the celebration was wild, everyone had a great time, and it was a very spectacular and special event. And I think... uh, people were taken aback by the strength of feeling and support that um, the royal family had on that day. And I think it was a great day of bringing people together across the nation. So I'm glad you enjoyed it as well. Yeah. I, well, like I say, I I hadn't intended to watch, but once I started, I, I realized there is so much tradition at work here. And um, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for thearticle.com, um, Princess Charlotte, the spare, who is key to the monarchy's future. Now, I'll admit, I haven't done the best at keeping up on all the members of the royal family, but talk to me about Princess Charlotte. Who is this young lady? So, Princess Charlotte is the second child and first daughter of um, the Prince and Princess of Wales. So, the Prince of Wales is Prince William, and he is second in line to the throne, and Charlotte is fourth in line to the throne, and in between them is um, Charlotte's brother, Prince George. And Charlotte is eight years old and she made an appearance at the coronation and she really turned head. She was wearing a white cape and robe and she looked like she was about to walk into Star Wars and kind of rule the galaxies. But she really turned heads by doing a spectacular job at the coronation. And yeah, she's only eight years old. uh, So she did a very good job. Sophia, you make the case in your article that uh, that uh, Princess Charlotte could make or break the future of the monarchy. Help me understand how it is that, that she plays such a pivotal role. So at the heart of our monarchy is the royal family. And if what the past, past few years have shown is if they don't get the family part right, they might get the royal part right. If they don't get the family part right, they get into real trouble. And Princess Charlotte is, um, as I said, a kind of sibling of Prince George, who's likely to inherit the throne and become King George one day. And my argument in this article was to make the point that that sibling relationship is so important to going forward. We've seen in the last few years the consequences of when that sibling relationship between the heir and their sibling breaks down and that support that should have been there is taken away and becomes competition and becomes sniping and becomes, uh, well, we all know what it becomes, Netflix deals and uh, book deals. And I think my point here is if the the royal family really want to cement the next generation and then the subsequent generation after that, they really need to get that family aspect right and focus on on building relationships within the royal family and seeing where that support needs to be given. I think Princess Charlotte, as the close sibling of her brother, they're only less than two years apart in age, really uh, is key to establishing that relationship for the next generation and giving the support and the stability that Prince George, when he becomes king, will need. Okay, help uh, walk me through um, the role that uh, that the royal family plays. I know that you have a parliament, and uh, you know the the government appears to be you know a separate thing, but uh, but the royal family is still very much a part of British culture and of, of British life. What uh, what is expected of them, and and what do, what do they do within uh, British society? 
Yeah, so our royal family and the head of state, the monarch, which obviously is uh, King Charles at the moment, um, have a ceremonial head of state role. So they don't get involved in political decisions. They, the monarch has to stamp uh, with royal assent every bill that is passed by parliament. But I don't think there's been any precedent where they haven't stamped. It's just a formality. There's no uh, scope for them to be changing legislation. So what they really represent is that ceremonial role, that figurehead. Um, they do lots of fairly glamorous things like the coronation where they get out in their robes and their crowns and their jewels. But actually the majority of their work is very mundane and they're going out day after day after day uh, doing opening village halls or opening schools or meeting charity workers or meeting nurses and doctors. And they're doing small things on a regular basis that make people feel special, that thank people for their service and that provide a focus for excitement and um, adoration within the United Kingdom. And also our monarch is, I think, our greatest diplomat. They do absolutely loads of foreign trips as well. And I know the late Queen, Queen Elizabeth, um, was famed for how many trips she went on across the world, both in the Commonwealth and elsewhere. And they are uh, the diplomat everyone wants to shake hands with. They are the most um, important way that we can uh, in kind of Im improve our soft power uh, image across the world as well. So they have a very important foreign affairs role too. But again, not political. It's all based on that relationship, the ceremonial role. Well, that that strikes me as a pretty important role, and uh, that means, of course, a corresponding responsibility uh, for for the children that are coming up within the the royal family as well. Um, now, you mentioned in your article that uh, sometimes there are tensions, and I, this is normal for any family. I assume the, the royal family is, is no different than, than the rest of us, in that when you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with, with uh, you know, the, the opportunity. There, there may be some, some drama. Um, what can they do to make sure that, that Princess Charlotte doesn't uh, get caught up in, in a, a royal spat? I think there's a few things that can be done here. And I think firstly, an example has been set really well of this supportive sibling relationship by the Princess Royal, Princess Anne, who is King Charles's uh, only sister and also next to him in the kind of line of the sibling order. So they're fairly close in age too. And she has been a brilliant support. She actually did more royal engagements last year than the King. And she has spent her whole life in that public service. But she's also had her own life that's been separate from the royal gaze. She competed for Team GB in the Olympics and she's very accomplished uh, equestrian and horse rider and she found her love and her joy in that and I think that really helped bring the siblings together but not in competition because they had their own things that they were focused on and I think that's something that Princess Charlotte and Princess George should also be really encouraged um, in is to find something that they like to do that's different. I think William and Harry um, often had too much overlapping interests. They both were in the army, for example. They both really loved conservation. They both worked a lot in Africa. They both made their campaigns mental health focus. And I think that competition crept in. And I think the second way that they can prepare the siblings for a life in the royal gaze is really to give them a, as normal life as possible. I know um, the Princess of Wales is very 
keen on her children living an outdoor life, being going to a kind of fairly normal school um, and having normal friends and being able to do fun things. And I think keeping that grounded is really important. So I think even now, even though Princess Charlotte is only eight, they need to take the pressure off her, yes, um, and give her a normal life, yes, but they also need to prepare her for her her destiny, as it were, as a future um, sibling of the king. So I think it's important the groundwork is laid now, and then they won't reap the harms of when it goes wrong. Once again, we are visiting with Sophia Warringer. She's the Deputy Policy Director at the Center for Social Justice and a former parliamentary aide, as well as a contributor to Young Voices. And Sophia, for people who would like to follow your work, where's the best place for them to find you? You can find me on Twitter at Sophia Warringer. Okay. Thank you so much for shedding light on this. You know, I've I've been tempted to think that, well, it must be pretty easy to be a member of the royal family, but after hearing what you've described here, that sounds like actually there's some pretty heavy responsibility. I don't know that I would want to shoulder that. <laughs> no, I don't think it's actually very fun at all. And you don't get much freedom, really. You can't really do what you want. And you, yeah, it's quite challenging, I imagine. Thanks again for your time. Thanks so much for having me on. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome uh, Benjamin Koshbin to the program. Benjamin, uh, for the sake of those meeting you for the very first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you do. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so my name is Benjamin Koshbin. Uh, I'm a Young Voices contributor. I write primarily on energy, the environment, climate, and uh, foreign policy. And uh, in my day job, I uh, work in a bipartisan public affairs firm dealing with uh, energy, climate, and foreign policy issues as well. Well, I'm looking at an article of yours on the Daily Caller about how if Biden doesn't help this U.S. ally, China will. And I assume it's Saudi Arabia that we're talking about here, correct? That is correct. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it kind of feels of late that uh, the U.S. has been on fairly unsteady footing with Saudi Arabia after after having, you know, allied with them, allied with them for, uh, I don't know, for quite some time. It seems like we were on much better terms, but lately that seems to be in question. Is that the case? That is definitely the case. And uh, you can point to a few high profile incidents that have uh, made our relationship a lot more rocky. Obviously, the death of uh, Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi and the Saudi government's involvement in that. Um, Saudi Arabia and OPEC um, manipulating oil prices to the detriment of the U.S. obviously upset the Biden administration and U.S. policymakers. And recently, China brokering somewhat of a detente between Saudi Arabia and Iran um, really kind of up the ante, I would say. So with with Saudi Arabia being in such a uh, an oil rich part of the world, I would think that you know energy concerns are, are the least of their concerns. But uh, but apparently it sounds like the Saudis are, are taking a very serious look at nuclear energy development. Um, why is that? Are they trying to get away from fossil fuels like, like other nations? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So it's not just Saudi Arabia. There are many oil-rich nations that are looking into nuclear energy. Um, for example, the uh, UAE actually just finished building um, and has begun to operate their first nuclear reactor um, built by a uh, South Korean nuclear company. Obviously, Iran is an oil-rich nation and is uh, trying to uh, ostensibly build peaceful nuclear technology, although there's quite a bit of debate over what their true intentions are. But in any case, um, yes, of course, these are massively oil-rich nations, but they understand that um, oil is um, the oil market is rather fickle. And, um, you know, there may come a time 100, 200 years down the line, who's to say, where oil no longer holds the sway in international politics that it does now with the advent of renewables, with climate concerns. Um, so they're planning for the future. They want to think long term. And nuclear is a long term investment. One nuclear plant can run for 80 years. So they're thinking for their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. How do we secure our energy future? How do we ensure that we remain a regional power and a global player if oil's power declines in the future? So, and it sounds like China is actually stepping up here and uh, becoming an exporter of, of nuclear energy. Um, so, Talk to me about, uh, the, does the U.S. have the option of getting involved in the development of nuclear energy, civilian nuclear energy in um, Saudi Arabia? And, and if they didn't, why wouldn't they? Yes. Yeah, so at the moment, it looks like the Biden administration is, is reluctant to help Saudi Arabia out with their nuclear program, um, largely because... Saudi Arabia doesn't just want a reactor. They also want to be involved in the fuel cycle. And that presents a concern to U.S. policymakers. Um, Saudi Arabia wants to be able to not only operate nuclear reactors, they want to be able to enrich and sell their own uranium. So this presents um, nonproliferation concerns to the U.S. Um, because in order to cooperate uh, in order to secure American cooperation on any sort of civilian nuclear project, you have to agree to very strict non-proliferation concerns. So do we have the capacity to do it? Of course. Um, are there some significant roadblocks? Yes. But I think that we should take a hard look at it because I'm of the opinion that if we don't, China is more than happy to, uh, to step in and help. And they actually already have. And what is the downside of China um, stepping in and, and being that that helper? So I think it's the downside that we've already seen um, with China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, where they're bringing not just developing countries, but um, regional powers closer into their orbit through strategic investments in infrastructure and in energy um, in transportation. Um, it's another soft power venture by China that'll make it more difficult for the United States to um, deter you know, their influence worldwide. Frankly, it's just, it's just better to have friends uh, than it is enemies. And it's, it's, it's clear that 
Saudi Arabia is a strong regional partner. Um, we need their assistance to deter, uh, you know, a growing Iran. We need their assistance when it comes to um, stabilizing oil prices. So it, it would just not be good to have them fall closer into China's orbit. You know, we may obviously disagree with um, the way that they uh, go about human rights. And of course, we should continue to criticize them and hold them accountable. But sometimes you just have to make friends with um, with unsavory partners because uh, that's just how global politics works. So it sounds like it would be more of a strategic consideration um, about the U.S. and China more so than, uh, you know, hey, Saudi Arabia, we need you. Um, if, I, if I'm if I'm reading that that correctly. Yeah. That is, that is definitely correct. Um, I'm seeing this through the lens of, if we don't do this, China will. And I'm not just speculating. China has actually um, already helped them uh, build yellow cake enrichment facilities um, in the Saudi Arabian desert. Um, they've already said that they're intending to submit a bid to Saudi Arabia to build a nuclear reactor. So I'm not just pulling these concerns out of thin air. There are, there's a clear paper trail of a partnership between China, of a burgeoning partnership between China and Saudi Arabia on the nuclear front. So I think I'm not trying to dismiss non-proliferation concerns, but I think that we should meet, try to have a dialogue with Saudi Arabia about, okay, you know, we understand that you guys want to enrich uranium. Uh, would you agree to these particular safeguards? Um, what if we can offer them a better deal um, than the Chinese can? I think there are just a number of different avenues that we could take um, to present a compelling offer that doesn't necessarily accede to every single one of their demands. And and Benjamin, I, I got to ask you this one more time. I, I may have missed it earlier, but uh, where what what's the beginning of the rift between the the Saudis and and the U.S. government? Because they they were tied for so long, but uh, where where did that rift really begin? Oh, I mean that is a tough question. Um, I would say that obviously relationships have always been shaky in a post nine eleven world. Um, especially because many of the 9-11 attackers were from Saudi Arabia. I mean, that's just that's just a fact. But I would say it really accelerated after the death of Jamal Khashoggi and the Saudi government's involvement in that, and more, more specifically, what role did MBS, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the, the head of Saudi Arabia's government, what role did he play in that? So... Are they, you know, the ideal moral partner of the United States? No, and I don't think anybody is pretending that. But do we need to deter Chinese influence and ensure that we keep countries in our orbit? Yes. So I think I'm looking at this through clear eyes and looking at it through a very realist, very practical lens. And um, I'm just concerned about China bringing more countries into their orbit. And this is something that they've done with nuclear technology. It's something they've done with infrastructure investments all across the Middle East, all across Africa, in Europe, South America. So I think we, this is just, um, you know, rational, a realist approach to foreign policy. You know, and I don't mean for this to sound ominous, so if it does, I apologize, but it sounds like China's just getting started. In, in other words, it's like it's it's testing the waters as its influence is expanding, and, and they're just barely beginning. 
Mm -hmm. And they're already trying to play peacemaker in the Middle East. They tried, they, they successfully brokered a deal between Saudi or Saudi Arabia and Iran to, um, you know, re-enter negotiations to, 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 to restart diplomatic connections. So what's next? What if they tried their hand at the Israeli Palestinian conflict and Israel falls out of our orbit? Um, I'm just concerned um, because obviously having countries trust the U.S., having them in our orbit benefits us. It benefits us in international markets. It benefits us in a foreign policy and a security sense. So I just want to keep them close to us. Okay, again, we're talking with Benjamin Koshman. He's a Young Voices contributor. And uh, where can people find you on social media? Sure. So give me a follow at B-E-N-K-H-O-S-H-B-I-N on Twitter. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Luke Hogg back to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor. And Luke, I I know that uh, you also do a couple other things in addition to Young Voices. Tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Well, I'm the director of outreach at an organization called the Foundation for American Innovation. Um, We actually just recently rebranded. We used to be called the Lincoln Network, but we kind of outgrew that name because we do a lot more um, on the policy side and and the think tank side of things nowadays. Um, But I primarily work around uh, emerging technologies and uh, and their issues with public policy and, and specifically um, do a lot of work around modernization of the government. So we look at, at cool ways that the private sector is already innovating and doing wonderful things, uh, and we see what we can do to potentially bring those things into modernizing government services and make things more efficient and effective for taxpayers. You know, I'm looking at a piece that you wrote for the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, Utah makes progress on digital IDs for citizens with blockchain technology as a bonus. And I have to admit, Luke, I kind of have mixed feelings on this because when I hear digital IDs, um, my first thought is, uh, I don't want to just be a number and I, and I don't want my identity to be a, you know, a government granted privilege. On the other hand, you know, pretty much every card I carry in my wallet is some digital form of ID. So, it, you know, it's kind of like hollering after the cows are out of the barn. Um, we're, we're already on our way there, but I want security. And when you mention blockchain, suddenly I'm like, okay, tell me more about uh, about how this this is progress and, and how this may actually work in favor of people, you know, who who value their privacy. Well, sure. You know, I want to come back to that point about um, the the issues of privacy and and the broader idea of a digital ID. But you know, when it comes to blockchain, I think that this is a really fantastic tool that can be used to simultaneously protect privacy, protect security, and allow us to do um, really cool things when it comes to to digital identification or even transactions as we're seeing today. So I think, um, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we one day had a system where uh, just as you have your um, your credit card or your debit card in your Apple wallet and you can kind of just tap it and move about your day, if we could do that with identification, that's, that's also a really cool innovation that we can do. Um, but as you pointed out, privacy and security are, are real big issues. So um, one of the interesting ideas that is out there, and this has actually already been uh, solved to some degree by the private sector, um, and is just an issue of uh, getting the government on board with this, is to use blockchain technology and to use something called a zero-knowledge proof um, that effectively 
uh, allows you to do this in a privacy-preserving way. And um, that's all a bunch of jargon to effectively say that you can you can put your information, so say it's your, your, your driver's license number uh, online in a wallet that only you can control and only you can look into. And then we use a bunch of fancy math and cryptography to basically confirm that you are who you say you are without ever having to give anybody access to that information. Well, that does sound pretty good. And of course, it, it, it uh, hopefully uh, you know, does away with the, the fear of, oh, I've lost my wallet or I've lost my ID. Well, sure. And I think this is, you know, uh, so I live in Washington, D.C., and, um, you know, I have my credit cards and my debit cards on uh, on my phone that I use to, you know, pay for lunch and whatnot. Um, but the really cool one is that they've now allowed um, um, your Metro card, they, you know, the thing you use for um, the bus or the, the train, and they allow you to add now add that to your phone. So um, I think we're already moving in this direction of kind of bringing the digital um into into government services so uh to me the logical next step is to to do that with identification okay and this is the libertarian in me that has to ask this question but does this give government greater influence or control over blockchain technology or does the blockchain technology remain neutral it's it's just a tool well i think the technology will always remain neutral it's simply a tool and there's lots of really interesting ways that you can implement that tool and, and do wonderful um, things that you know make services easier and more efficient for for governments and taxpayers I think the the bigger question is um, you know how does this impact the government's control of your information right so um, there are some proposals out there to essentially do uh, digital identification at the federal level and I just want to be very clear that I think that is an absolutely horrible idea um, so at the federal level, uh, giving them access to all of our information, um, whether it be driver's licenses or, or things like that, um, it's just a, a, another big database that the federal government can have on, on all of their citizens. However, um, what Utah, Arizona, and Colorado are doing, uh, and some other states are looking at, um, in different ways that you know, I think Utah is obviously doing the best job here. Hence the piece um, is they're taking; they already have that information, right? The government already issues you your license. Um, so they already have that information stored in some database somewhere. Um, so wouldn't it be cool to just take that database that already exists and that we've already basically agreed uh, that the government should have access to and just provide it in a more uh, user-friendly way? And and where did, where did the idea for this come from? I, I'm just curious, who was leading out in Utah that said, hey, this is something we ought to be pursuing? You know, uh, I think it comes straight out of the governor's office. This is an issue that has been um, a huge, uh, you know, push for um, in different states. So, um, you know, Colorado and Arizona, um, these are kind of percolating issues. Um, but it's really interesting to see that uh, they're taking this very cautiously optimistic approach to a lot of this technology. So what they're doing is they're not saying we're going to go out and we're going to implement this and we're going to force everybody to all of a sudden have um, new ideas. You know, I think as we saw with the um, um, the new ID system that the federal government is using for, you know, say TSA and the like um, with the, the nice yellow star, um, that's been uh, an absolute fiasco and has, has really taken a long time uh, to get everybody on board. So instead, what they're doing is kind of taking a cautiously optimistic approach where they start pilot programs and they, uh, they're they setting up commissions to look at how these things um, 
might be able to be implemented in the future. Um, so they're kind of taking baby steps, and that's that's what we we should should want to happen um, when we're talking about modernizing some of these government services. Okay, wow, that's uh, well, it's rare that you'll hear me say well job, well done, government, but. <laughs> In this case, you know, to the governor's office in Utah, that's that's really good. Uh, talk to me for a moment about uh, blockchain technology. Um, I, I know that uh, look, cryptocurrency's been around for a while. You know, Bitcoin. Huh, you know, people. Oh, that's that's so. You know, several years ago, but but it really is growing, and I, and I think uh, blockchain technology, by all indicators, seems to be here to stay. Are we going to see this become more of a part of our day to day lives, kind of like the internet did? It was a fad once upon a time, but now who could possibly imagine life without it? You know, Brian, um, I really hope so. I've been a big advocate for this technology, not for um, the cryptocurrencies themselves. Obviously, you brought up Bitcoin. There's a lot out there. Um, there's a lot of uh, problems, quite frankly, with um, the way some of these things have been implemented. Um, so I'm not here to say that you know everybody should be should be using Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of these things. However, the underlying technology, the idea of a blockchain, is is really a, a cool way to to do data, to do data storage, to do data transactions to run something like the internet. Um, and I think that is really valuable. So essentially, the value in something like a blockchain is, is decentralization. So when you kind of look around at the tech sphere that we, that we live and breathe in today, um, what you see a lot of is centralization. So if you think about um, Amazon, can Amazon and Microsoft own the vast majority of cloud computing. You know. Um, and and all up and down these um, portions of the technology stack, which is a fancy way to say all of the technology that allows you and I to um, go online and do the things that we do, from the networks that are run by like you know Comcast and Verizon, all the way up to the platforms like Meta and Facebook. Um, that has been centralized uh, through a lot of different ways. So, and some of that centralization has been good and has allowed um, us to, to use these services and goods uh, in really unique ways. Um, but fundamentally, blockchains are, are a way that we can decentralize that control. And I think digital ID is a fantastic example of that. Because if you, you there's a way that you can implement this system using blockchain that doesn't allow the government to have control of any of your information. Essentially, we all are operating in what we call a trustless environment. I don't need to trust the government with, inf with my information. Um, with a blockchain, I don't need to, to trust the government at all. Um, I just need to trust the math and, and the cryptography and the technology that's behind it. Um, and so for me, that's the real value here. That actually has a very nice ring to it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> but it, the the key word here, though, decentralization. Um, you know, to the extent that anything is decentralizing and and kind of breaks up and spreads that power out and control out, I am very very intrigued and want to know more about it. Again, we're talking with Luke Hogg. Luke, uh, for those who want to follow you on social media, would like to follow your writing. What do you recommend? What's the best place to find you? Well, you can always check out uh, what me and my colleagues do at the Foundation for American Innovation at thefai.org. That's T-H-E-F-A-I.org. Um, but if you want to follow me personally, you can always find me on Twitter at at, at L-E-H-O-G-G. All right, Luke, great to visit with you. Let's talk again soon. Thanks again, Brian.